millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of the podcast. This week, I had a wonderful conversation with my friend Rachel Fennell, who is currently a political science PhD candidate at the University of Kansas. So naturally, as a Mizzou grad, I am required to say that KU sucks, and a big M-I-Z to all of my fellow Mizzou alumni currently listening. Nah, I'm just kidding. I love Rach despite her choice of institution. I really wanted to chat with her because she studies authoritarian regimes, and I thought it would be really important to chat about the relationship between modern and ancient political thought, how poli-sci and ancient studies majors need to work together to succeed, and ask about the possible misappropriation of historical symbols in authoritarian regimes to amass and hold power. While I had every intention of keeping things pretty serious, it's incredibly hard to do so because of how much fun we have when we talk. So I hope you'll love our banter as much as we did. Uh, enjoy the episode, and I will speak to you all next time. So, Rach, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I was really excited to have you on because it's a little different because you are not an ancient studies scholar. You are, in fact, a political scientist, which is awesome because I love political scientists. We are, we are just rays of sunshine these days. <laughs> I know, our guiding lights. So with that, though, walk us back a little bit. How did you discover you loved political science? And that's a big umbrella, but for people who don't know, you study authoritarians, which is like super cool. So I want to give people a behind the scenes look at how does one just suddenly discover they like studying authoritarians? Yeah. So, you know, I get this question a lot. I get it from students who are like, why do you want to study dictators? Like what made you interested in being a political scientist? What made you interested in understanding autocrats? And, you know, for me, political science was, they were like my favorite courses during my undergrad. I, I went to University of Central Missouri and I transferred there from a, um, from a community college. And I remember I was majoring in economics and I loved it. But um, I, I always felt like political science was really my passion. And so I minored in political science and just fell in love with the courses and decided that I wanted to be a professor someday. So I 
took the took the jump and applied to graduate school and um, got into the University of Kansas, rock chalk. Uh, and uh, I know Lexi, you're from you're a Mizzou grad, so uh, we're we're supposed to be bitter enemies, but today we put that aside <laughs> so, for for the podcast. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I got into the University of Kansas and um, I just fell in love with, with you know, the idea of these authoritarian regimes. Um, I started in 2016. Uh, it's no, no uh, coincidence likely that I started studying it in 2017 uh, because I'd seen, you know, this, this push among, among the world to have more authoritarian leaders. I was fascinated by you know, Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, other authoritarians around the world. And I, I'd grown up being fascinated by fascists as a, as a kid. Um, I loved reading about World War II and I always wanted to understand why and how in the world these people came to power. Like, how did Hitler become a thing? How did Stalin become a thing? How in the world did we ally with, were we allies with, with the Soviet Union and with Stalin, given all of the terrible things that Stalin did? And uh, it just, it was one of those things that it just, I realized um, after taking a class at KU over the summer, I directed readings, that that was what I wanted to do, that that was my passion. And, uh, and I just, you know, went for it. And now I just, I love it. It's, it's so much fun. I get to do what I, what I love every day. And I feel so grateful to, to be able to do that because I know a lot of people can't necessarily say that, but I get to be a scholar and a student for, for um, my, my career. Um, and then I get to do research about authoritarians and learn, you know, all about them. And it's just, it's, it's so much fun. And um I've always just been fascinated by by dictators. So that's sort of how it came to be. Yeah. So dictators have an, obviously they're they're not a a new invention. They go way back to the earliest yeah. civilizations. So I would say politics more than a lot of other career fields and areas are super interconnected with the ancient world. And yeah. so did you over the course of your undergrad years take any ancient studies courses I mean maybe study like ancient political thought or uh, some sort of ancient civilizations course because I've got to imagine that the the level of political intrigue back then I mean it's bonkers but it said it sets kind of the roadmap for all the the modern ones right right um you know I'm trying to think back to my undergrad years and the courses that I took and I I took a political um ideology is a political theory course. And so you go back into, you know, really early stuff, Plato, Aristotle, et cetera. Um, and, and I really, I was fascinated by that class. I loved it. I loved reading all of these different theory that, that just, it blew my mind. I was like, this is so cool. Like, uh, and um, that sort of really ignited that, that, that passion and that, that intrigue inside me. But I also took, you know, some world civilizations courses. I never took any sort of any courses beyond that, but it was most of like, like more historical sort of seeing how the civilizations of the world have progressed over time from, from origin to where we are now-ish, right? As close to now as you get in a general um, history course. So, yeah. So obviously sometimes it's, just not readily available or 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 it really doesn't 
it, it doesn't need to be studied then, I suppose. There, there, there's so many different reasons why places may or may not offer ancient courses, especially for people going into to politics. But do you find yourself at all now that you're in grad school, maybe not for a class per se, but do you find yourself needing or wanting to do some research on some ancient cultures if you see a particular similarity between, hey, I don't know, Putin kind of seems like what he's doing. Hey, that, that, that mirrors like Augustus or something. Do you find yourself wanting to go back, pick up a book and say, all right, let me see what Augustus did so I can compare it to the modern stuff? I mean, you know, history uh, and, and examples from the past are so critical in our understanding of where we're at now, right? Um, history always says, uh, you know, I'm, this is not my quote by any means, but history has a way of repeating itself, right? So if you really want to understand how someone is coming to power, right, and their behavior, that history is, is important to understand. I mean, in a lot of ways, if you look at the political culture of many of these countries, it's that history, it's that, that context of each country, um, or even, you know, autocrats could have their favorite historical figure who they want to embody, right? So, so to understand that behavior of, of like Vladimir Putin or something, it's so important to understand the context and the past um, because, you know, they're not inventing something new. This isn't like just all of a sudden we were like, wow, well, we've never had a dictator before Hitler, therefore, uh, you know, it's like th this, it's so important to understand the past and to understand previous dictators, previous em emperors um, throughout history to really understand where we are now and how we get to the current autocrats, the current dictators. So you mentioned Hitler a couple times now, and obviously yeah. he is one of the most fascinating figures to study if you like studying fascism. And right, well, right. I don't, I don't want to say you... Well, Okay, certain people, some of us actually like studying fascism, which is kind of some horrible masochistic thing we do to, to ourselves. But um, but you've mentioned him now. And so I think a lot of people don't know that Hitler was a classicist. Hitler really, he really admired a lot of the ancient writers, which that shocks so many people. And I, I think when I first learned that, it shocked me. But then after a couple of years of, of study and serious research, I said, no, that's not actually that shocking anymore. But yeah. because he tried to make his Third Reich, the, the new Roman Empire, essentially, uh, right, taking right. after all these imperialistic ideas, because he essentially didn't make anything up. I mean, he got all of his stuff looking at the classical world since he loved it so much. Do you think that as, as a teacher yourself now, is it important to perhaps integrate some of these ancient studies courses more into modern political courses? I mean, if you really want to study Hitler, wouldn't you want to study with where he got his ideas and his influences, which essentially are ancient Roman, ancient Greece? Right. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, I, I talk about Hitler because unfortunately or fortunately, depending on, uh, you know, most people know who Hitler is right like it's a really good sort of example like this guy was bad he did all of these bad things um and you know most people also know you know vladimir putin and, and other other um, autocrats but i think having that context is so useful um having tying in sort of this background um to like the origins of of this ideology to the origins of the symbolism to the origins of 
um, the purpose of like wanting to build and and create this massive empire, right? That's important. It's not just that he did bad things. Like, how did he get there? How did he get to this point where he decided this is what I want? And I think that that could be really useful in the classroom to highlight not just um, the political science aspect, but um, but to highlight beyond political science, to tie in other disciplines, this interdisciplinary um, nature of authoritarian regimes, of dictators. Yeah. And I think for a lot of universities with funding and other issues, um, we really sort of don't like to think about things being interdisciplinary unless it's some of the bigger, more I don't, I don't want to say right. important because because it's all important, but mm-hmm. uh, visible things. I you're you're in Lawrence, Kansas right now. Uh, where yes, where yeah. so you, you teach at KU. It's okay if you don't know, but do you have you seen any sort of uh, advertisement or general showcasing of the KU Classics program or? do they do a a decent job of kind of broadcasting hey we're here you can come take classes like we do have a department um or do you just kind of not see that around campus you know I don't recall seeing that around campus with the caveat that I was stuck most of the time in my in Blake Hall uh in my office and I didn't really venture out a whole lot um occasionally I'd walk around campus to uh you know, get fresh air and uh, grab food and coffee. But, uh, but because of that, um, I didn't really see a lot um, of the advertisement or the push for, um, for those sorts of courses. Um, but that could have been because I just wasn't really looking for it, or I wasn't in the right space. But yeah. that also kind of affirms what most of us in the humanities know, which is we do a terrible, like such a shit job at actually broadcasting. <laughs> right. When you talk about the accessibility of these courses and of these programs so that people who do want to go into bigger things like political science, it seems like we're really forcing students to be industrious and find something on their own that if no one told them it exists, they just they're not going to have it. Very select programs all over the country where it is more visible because they're they're bigger. They have more funding. They um, they just have that overall higher level of notoriety i mean you go to if you look it up on the internet you'll find do you want to join the harvard classics program or the yale one or hopkins or something right right ivy league big name schools of course yeah for poli sci it's huge but there's so many different subfields that you can go into uh right do you see is it is it kind of tiered the way ancient studies are where maybe there's the bigger more popular areas within poli sci to go to versus like the smaller more niche places where they don't talk about it at all um i think that really depends and i think it, it i'm trying to think of, of of examples in my um in my life there's of course you know those big name schools that that everyone knows harvard stanford yale those political science programs are, you know, top notch, top up up there. Um, but I don't think political science, and and at least in my experience, I can speak to my own experience. Um, other people may have experienced something different, but I don't think political science has had that same sort of um, visibility issue. I think if you go to certain state schools or smaller schools, then that's when you'll start to experience the political science is not as as taken as widely. 
Um, you know, some programs don't have nearly as, as high enrollment, but it's likely what students are going to that school for are maybe different than political science. Like if they're gonna go study political science, um, they may go to a, a larger institution um, in general based on internships or connections or opportunities. And that might be what they do versus uh, you know, a smaller school where they may not necessarily get those that same sort of, of connection and, and opportunities. For sure, for sure. Um, and obviously those are like really big weighty questions where there's not gonna be a right answer. <laughs> and right. it's obviously different based on experience for people, but uh, right. it's, it's always interesting to just see, you know, what have you personally seen versus what do we perceive as maybe issues, maybe not, I don't know. Um, so right. it's, it's, and I, I think the one thing about political science that a lot of people, you know, when I tell people I study political science, um, they think all I do in graduate school is sit around and talk about politics. Um, and it's so, it's, listen, I, I enjoy politics. Politics is fascinating to me, but by no means is that, that what we do, um, every day. We talk about current events. We talk about all of these different things occurring in the world. Um, but it's so much more than just sitting around having these debates about a, a single politician or a single political party, um, it's, it's so much more than that. And I think that that might be um, a common misconception about political science that that's inaccurate. Like we do talk about politics, but that is not the purpose of studying political science. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you want to just bust through some of those misconceptions, I'm happy to let you do so <laughs> because I can't tell you how many people they're like, why would you want to go do that? Then that's so that sounds so awful, so boring. Don't you just sit around and like read the news all day? Like, how does your head not pop off? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, the news is important, and I have my students participate in um, current events discussion and current events assignments where they go and seek out um, information happening relating to concepts that we're learning in class, right? So, as a political scientist, um, I am focused in two areas, but my research generally focuses in one. So, I study comparative politics, which is the politics of domestic like systems, um, domestic, whatever's occurring within a country, right? Um, whether it be, are you a, um, how, what's, what's the, the makeup of your legislature? What kind of executive do you have? Do you have a president? Do you have a prime minister? How is your judicial system built up? Um, what about the political culture? So that is like the, um, in the United States, we our political culture is based a lot around freedom and liberty, uh, individualism, and um, a, a few other other like equality, not economic, but political equality and a few other things. Um, and public opinion, we look at like, wh what do people think about these sorts of things? But within comparative politics, um, I study institutions, which is the legislature, the executive, et cetera, but I do that within authoritarian regimes. The other area that I, that I majored in is international relations, which is just the interaction between countries um, what causes war? What res results, uh, how, how does trade happen um, politically? Different things like that. Um, but we sit around and we talk about and learn about legislatures or, or um, 
do you have a unicameral system, which is one house? Do you have a bicameral system, which is two house, two houses? What does that mean for, for the sorts of output that you have? Why is it that Congress is so slow? Um, you know, all of these different things. We don't sit around and talk um, about, about politics and like Republicans versus Democrats. We sit around and go, what is, how do we get here? How did we, did this emerge? Why is it that this is important and necessary to understand? How does it work, right? Like government can be, you know, really mystical and, and sort of like difficult to understand, but it's actually, if you sit down and look at the, the mechanisms, it's, it's not nearly that as difficult um, to understand, but um, but we don't talk about politics every day. But we, we don't we don't have grand debates over um, presidential candidates in, in classes or uh, or things like that. No, we we talk a, a lot about you know what's going on in each country and with respect to um, public opinion and um, protests and and how do these things come to be instead of what's actually occurring today. We, we, you can use that in the classroom and outside of the classroom to understand what's likely to happen later or what are the origins of this, but, but we don't sit and just yak about politics every day. I think that's actually really comforting to know um, because a, a lot of people I meet, they go, you're working in politics now or, oh, you're so political. Why weren't you a poli-sci major? Like, what were you yeah. doing with your life? Um, yeah. And I and I think it's, I mean, I didn't know, I suppose, the, the intricacies of, of what getting the major and what kind of classes um, you have to right. take. But I kind of knew. I just said, you know, I, I, I like what I like is the short answer. And so to wade yeah. through classes of things that I wouldn't particularly they're they're interesting for sure but that i wouldn't probably find useful for for my own future i'd be like eh, i don't really want to take this so hence i did not go into poli sci i didn't minor in it and um yeah, yeah you gotta do what you love yeah for sure for sure i mean well if you don't do what you love i mean what are you doing with your life right yeah i mean but, you're just probably miserable or sad <laughs> Well, it's something I, I, I address quite frequently on the podcast, I think. Uh, when I talk to people, we kind of have this idea of one of the turnoffs of the humanities to a lot of people is I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to be poor. It's a waste of my time because I can't do anything with that. And what often ends right. up happening is I get a lot of comments like, oh, of course. I mean, I love this general insert topic. Let's use politics. Honestly, I love politics. I love ancient politics more than I love modern politics, or I love studying the makeup of societies and political ideologies. Oh, but, you know, I would never, ever take a chance and do that uh, by, by getting a, a classics major because they say things like, my parents told me I have to go make money so I can come off payroll. So what you get <laughs> is a lot of people who are just convinced they have to be investment bankers or convinced that they have to be accountants or something, money managers, I don't yeah. know. But then they just yeah. all look kind of silently desperate and just so depressed. And like, yeah. you know. You know, if, if that is your passion, if you want to be an investment banker or an accountant, and I have, I have, you know, some friends who are in the business world and more power to you. That's great. If that's where you're, you, if that's what you love and it pays the bills and it just so happens to pay the bills rather well, 
congratulations, great, right? I think the, 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 the sort of thing that gets missed when we talk about, you know, the humanities or the social sciences that, that aren't the, the quote unquote money makers is that, you know, understanding the world through the context of, of some of these, these focuses is necessary to be a well-rounded individual. It's not just that you are, um, you know, getting the job, you're going to get a job, right? Ultimately, you know, like it, it's not, it's not a matter of like this, having this degree equals no job, but it's, it, it helps you think about the world differently. It helps build your critical thinking skills. It helps you have a better understanding of your place in all of this, right? Uh, and in many ways you have skills that are different from someone who um, only looks at, at, you know, investment, right? Like if you are, are an investment banker, you're thinking numbers, but if, but if you've been trained, um, you know, in the humanities, maybe you're thinking numbers are great, but let's think about some of this other thing. So you have all of this, this different approach to the world that is so useful and the world needs. Um, you know, I think a lot about, you know, STEM and this push to really, you know, get more, more women, especially, um, people of color and to, to STEM. And I, it's great and it's necessary and it's important. God bless all of them because modern medicine is a beautiful thing and we will soon be all vaccinated and, and hopefully back to more normalcy in the future thanks to STEM and thanks to modern medicine. They can diagnose sick people, right? They can diagnose when someone's sick but humanities and social sciences can diagnose when society is sick. Um, and there's so much more that we have to understand about the world. It's not just one-sided. And I wish that there would be more of a push to, um, instead of just focusing on the amount of money that you make, it should be this focus on, are you making enough money to survive? Yes, great. Um, but are, are you feeling fulfilled? Are you, do you enjoy what you're doing? Because that's, that's really like the goal in life. Life is short. You might as well do what you love. And if you're miserable all of the time, that money isn't going to matter. Um, I'm, you know, I may be making a controversial statement. People may disagree with me and that's your right, but I would rather be um, studying what I love and maybe not making as much money, um, but making more of an impact on the world than working some nine to five job where I'm absolutely miserable, but making a lot of money. It just, that's, that's just, that's my, my take, my take on things. Yeah. Well, I couldn't have put it better because usually I'm the one who died tribes about, you know, everyone's going into STEM and I think that's great, but you know what? You're doing it to the like exclusion and just, you're forgetting other things. I'm like, okay, everyone in STEM can literally, yeah, you, 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 can look at something and be like, okay, this is how we make something work. And I'm like, okay, but someone has to come up with the ideas to make your ideas work, right? You're not going right. to do it. You know the numbers. So if I say, right. let's cure world hunger. Okay. So you could probably put things into practice, but you need somebody smart who studies world systems, the, the past, what worked and what didn't. I mean, if not, your numbers right. people are just going to be trying stuff and um, who knows, it could be trying stuff that the ancients did then found out that they didn't work. And then you, you've wasted yeah. 10 years. Right. And I mean, beyond that, you know, I think of the political science aspect is, is policy. How do you implement this, what this new invention, this new thing? Um, how do you create a distribution strategy for a vaccine that requires very specific things. How do you get people to buy into it? Whenever, you know, right now there's not, maybe there's some, some distrust of 
of the vaccine. How do you do all of this? How do you create this sort of strategy to get out there and be have it be effective? It it's it's so much more than just you know the science aspect um, of of something. You yeah you have to have people who can help make sure that it's effective and that it works and that you're not doing something ineffective. Like I couldn't have laid it out better myself, dude, honestly, like I'm, I'm so (laughs) glad you went there with it, with the vaccine. Cause I'm like, that's, that's the perfect illustration though of this interconnected chain. Right. So you can have your STEM people actually working on and making the vaccine because that's what they know how to do. And then you right. need political scientists to come up with the policy and the implementation. How do you distribute? It? How do you do this? How do you work with the governments? Blah, blah, blah. And right. then the people who are going to try to do the like outward facing PR campaign are the people who know how to talk to other people, which is hi, historians, us. I mean, we are the people yeah. that kind of bring it together. Right. So that's this right. one big long chain of, yeah, STEM, poli sci, humanities. But it's all important because you, one right. step doesn't really work without the other. Right. I mean, OK, so great you have vaccine made, then you have people who know how to implement policy. If you can't convince anyone to take it, so then you have a vaccine that no one will take, even if you have a good plan to get it out. Um, right. So that's, that, right. that's like the perfect example right there that I can yeah. think of. Um, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, we're all a part of a system, right? We're all necessary in this system just because one is maybe more outwardly facing and, and, and more visible doesn't mean the rest of it isn't necessary. If you start taking things out of that system and you don't have humanities for the, for you know diagnosing the system as as good or bad or or, or being able to be more um, being able to apply things within the system, it 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 can very quickly cause problems. And yeah, we we're important. You know, uh, the humanities, the social sciences, we're here. We we just want to make the world the world a little bit better and a little bit more exciting. I also find it very sad that I feel like we're always having to argue and sort of justify why we're important, why we should exist. (laughs) Do you know how many like professions out there just like don't need to always have this justification? I feel like every political scientist friend I meet or everyone who has ever majored in any of the, the humanities after the the first the first three things out of your mouth are going to be like hi nice to meet you i'm and then the fourth thing out of your mouth is and here's why i'm going to justify you why what i studied is valid like so and i think part of it you know if you get down to um why that is is funding right so much of so many programs especially in higher ed are facing cuts and and it's being made worse of course by by covid right it, it, there were the times were already tight in a lot of programs, but in, in increasingly there's this push to uh, emphasize why it is your department or your discipline is so important and necessary so that you don't get your funding cut. Um, our very livelihoods, our very existence in many ways depends on this funding. And so, so it's very, it's very much natural for us at this point to be like, we still matter, please give us money. <laughs> please if I only have a quarter for every time someone said that about both poli sci and classics I would be a millionaire right now I swear um okay so I love everything about where this discussion has gone this is like perfect I want to bring it a little back though yeah yeah a little more personalized though so yeah if you would tell people like 
okay, so you study, you said you studied uh, authoritarian regimes. So now I want to get right. into that because I personally, from knowing you for a while now, I think that's like the yeah. coolest thing someone could study. And I know we've had some great discussions about fascism, yeah. about authoritarians, about mm-hmm. what it means in the context of today's world. So if you can just tell us all now a little bit about what that looks like, and then if you feel comfortable giving us a little hint about the dissertation, that would be great too. Ooh, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, authoritarian regimes, specifically what I study are the institutions. And I think I've mentioned this a bit, but um, that is sort of like, th- there are different paths you can take when studying authoritarian regimes. Some people study um regime type, um, which is how do you categorize and put into neat little boxes, news break, flash breaking news, you can't put everything into a neat little box. Um, but how, how do you, you know, categorize these types of like, is it a monarchy? Is it a single party regime? Is it a competitive authoritarian regime. I'm sure we've heard this term or an electoral authoritarian regimes. Competitive authoritarian regimes are kind of like the buzzword these days. A lot of um, regimes, a lot of countries are falling into that category um, where you have you know, democratic elections, but they're not fully democratic and you have um, some repression or of dissent. Um, you don't quite meet the democracy standard, but you're, you're not a democracy, you're not fully authoritarian, you're kind of in the middle, you're kind of a hybrid. Um, are you a military regime where you have, you know, the, the main players are military members, commanders, generals, etc. Or are you a personalist regime, which is basically the good old fashioned dictator, the one that you see, you know, think, um, I, I'm thinking of, of, of people like Kim Jong-un, and you know there are others, but that's probably the one that would be the most widely understood. There are people who study public opinion in, in authoritarian regimes, which um, whether or not you realize that they, they do ask people's opinions in, in authoritarian regimes. And there are people that study you know, transitions to democracy. So do these authoritarian regimes shift towards, how do they move from being authoritarian to being democratic? What are the processes that are going on in there? Um, and these are just, this is broad strokes. Like there are people that do so much more and, and I, I, you know, um, I don't have, we don't have time to talk about um, any of like the, the, dig really deep into what some of what they do. But for me, I study institutions um, and I study their constitution specifically. So my dissertation focuses on whether or not they follow these constitutions that they have written in, in the post-Cold War era. So it's everything from 1990 onwards through about 2010, because at some point you have to stop, right? You, you have to write the dissertation, you have to make some, some calls. Um, and I find that generally speaking, um, authoritarians follow their constitution. There are instances where they don't, right? Um, and that's to be expected in some some countries. Um, You don't expect all authoritarians to follow all the rules that they set out for themselves, Um, but they generally do. And I I, I go through and and I have um, many different countries that I've gathered data on and and I've spent many, many a days, much of my life has been um, looking for information on on these countries. uh, And it's specifically, are they following their executive rules and are they following their legislative rules? And I find that they generally do. And 
I'm finding too that following the constitution actually impacts the sort of trust that individuals have towards their government, towards their institutions. So do they trust the executive more? Do they trust the legislature more um, if you follow the constitution more? And it turns out a lot of times if you're following the constitution, it's going to increase the trust um, specifically among the legislature, not as much among the executive. And so I'm trying to sort out exactly why that is, but, but that's, that's sort of like the, the, the elevator speech of like, what is my dissertation? Uh, what do I find? What's exciting and interesting, but, but yeah, it, that, that's, that's mostly what I, what I'm focusing on right now. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I do on a day-to-day basis beyond teach. <laughs> that's awesome though. I mean, and now that 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 sprung up about 10,000 questions, which you don't have time for, but I'll, I'll try to pare it down as best I can. <laughs> okay, to, okay, okay. One, then, as someone who is going to study and become an expert in studying um, different constitutions for authoritarian regimes. Mm-hmm. So how easy or hard is it for an authoritarian regime now to just come in and sort of just change the constitution, like blatantly just, you know, what if we here in the States have an authoritarian come to power democratically and then just be like, all right, I'm just going to nix this, change that, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to follow it. You know, what does that do to a populace? Right. So, I mean, there are instances where that happens, right? You, a lot of times, um, that will happen around a coup, which is where the military is basically like, nope, no more. That's it. We're done. And uh, we're going to institute a new constitution. Um, There are other times where that sort of change happens thanks to elections. So you'll have, you know, an authoritarian in power for decades and they build the constitution to remain in power. And then by some, by some, happenstance all of a sudden now you have this this new ruler in power and they're like all right we're gonna we're gonna change the the constitution um but in general they don't scrap the constitution and start fresh all the time i think it's 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 easy to think that authoritarians are just going to like as soon as the constitution isn't working for you scrap it start over we're done like you know that's it um if they're going to change things, what seems to be the common strategy is to make small adjustments here and there. So I think of Russia, where recently Putin, this is back, I think, in June or July, adjusted where power was so that he could be remain in power, so that he would be the executive who remained in power. So there are restrictions on how many terms that he can run for, but if you move where the power is, then you just run for this other office or, or whatever, bada bing, bada boom, you know, you're still in power. Um, there are, you know, they'll extend and remove term limits and restrictions so that they, they don't have to change the whole constitution, right? They only have to change specific things and make minor adjustments so that they can remain in power um, and then use it to their advantage. So they're not necessarily scrapping it all and starting fresh. That's a lot of work. That takes a lot of work. Um, And if you did that enough, the constitution would no longer matter, right? Like at, at that point, would it even, does it even matter if you're just scrapping it? Like, 
it wouldn't have the same sort of legitimacy that it would have if you just make these minor modifications. So generally they're not scrapping it and throwing it away. Usually they're just making these small little adjustments along the way so they can remain in power. Um, and, you know, by no means, my research doesn't focus on, you know, do they follow it like with respect to human rights, with respect to all of these other things. I can promise you they'll have things about human rights or I've seen equal pay things uh, in constitutions, different things like that. I don't study that. So I would be willing to tell you, and, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here that there will be human rights abuses and they don't care about that aspect of the constitution. What they do care about are the rules that keep them in power and the rules that reinforce that they're in power and their, their place in the society as leaders, as the elite, as those in power, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, and, and when you say like small changes, are these changes so small that most of the populace is just not aware that what they're changing even existed? Like, how do you, because I know in this country, at least we have a lot of watchdogs. We have a lot of people who kind of scan the constitution. So any little minor change we try to do, but if it, if it changes something that will impact us down the road, we are lucky enough to live in a place where, hey, we have people being like, you're doing what now? Wait, I know this is some like obscure clause, but we see you, we see what you're trying to do for some of these other countries. Like take Egypt. Um, Right, right. When uh, when the coup happened and LCC got in power, obviously he didn't scrap the whole thing, but um, you know, is it just they don't have the infrastructure or they just don't have people who are politically engaged enough to be able to spot these little changes? So a lot of times, ironically enough, they do these changes via referendum. So they have the population vote on these things, right? So they build legitimacy to these changes by putting it up to vote for these people, right? So you have, I believe, I believe in in Egypt, um, last year, I think it was, LCC was uh, extended, like the term allowed to be in power was extended. It was constitutionally extended through referendum. So you have a lot of these, these adjustments and they're doing it in the open to where like literally asking the people, will you vote for this? Will you, will you, you know, they're giving them a kind of like a, an into the, the system itself and into buying into the legitimacy. Like this is their, their sort of being able to vote for it, whether or not it's free and fair and whether or not those are the actual results, right? Like if you see 99% of people approved of it, I would probably tell you that's, that's baloney. Um, but they're, but they do put these things up for vote a lot of times. It's not just that, you know, they're just making this adjustment and this change. Uh, it's, they let people buy into it. Right. So, so it seems like, is it, is it, so it seems kind of like on, on a, just a, a much larger scale, but it seems like it's that old human thing where, where, if someone wants something desperately and then you try to f- devise a, a clever way of, uh, you know, getting a, a friend, a colleague, a parent, something to, to realize, Hey, this would be a good idea. Well, I have an idea. <laughs> Let's do this. And you're like, I job complete. I have put it, you know, sown the seeds. So yeah. I'm going to make you think that it's your idea, even though it's really not coming from you, but now, now everyone will buy in because you've bought in just yeah. on a large yeah. scale. I think so. Yeah. If you can get to where the population is buying into your rule, then you're winning, right? Like if if you were changing it to where, 
you can basically be president for life and people are cool with that, then yeah, it, it's, it's making it seem as if it was their idea and, and that they're so happy and, and you're going to stay in power forever. Yeah. So, okay. So I know you, you, you study obviously more constitution. So this part may be a little mm-hmm. further field than you're able to go, but I'm going to ask anyway, mm-hmm. because it's fun. Um, <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Looking at a lot of these regimes, just because you've looked at more foreign countries and their systems of government than anybody I know of. currently. <laughs> um, yeah. How do most of these dynasties, regimes, whatever you want to call them, whatever they are in their, in their own countries, mm-hmm. how do they climb to power? You know, and is it because they're all suddenly fascists and they're all just like stirring up this nationalist fervor where they're like, we want to be pure. We like our people only. We don't like foreigners go away. I'm just wondering like what kind of thing propels these people to the front? You know, they must have some mm-hmm. powerful like PR campaigns. Cause otherwise you'd be like, that's completely stupid. I mean, I, I, there's definitely some, some push among, among uh, them to really sell this idea that they're a strong leader. Right. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of examples. A lot of um, leaders come to power especially new authoritarians, they come to power through elections. Um, I think of Erdogan in Turkey, he came to power free and fair elections and has since sort of deconstructed um, and removed a lot of these democratic things to stay in power, right? Like you start limiting um, opposition, you start limiting all of these things and all of a sudden, there you go, you know, bada bing, bada boom, you're an authoritarian. Um, But some of these these authoritarians have come to power at the um, given like at the end of, of colonial rule. Um, there was like there were conflicts of some sort, civil wars, and they just happened to be the one that rose to the top. Um, some of them uh, were a part of the party structure um, and have also worked their way to the top. So I think in 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 China you have the uh, the Communist Party and you have this Leninist party model, which is very hierarchical, very much like this, you have this person above this person above this person and, and it sort of follows up and you just work your way through it. So there's there's not necessarily one way in which authoritarians come to power. Um, how they stay in power though, a lot of it is built around building up this idea of legitimacy, building up this idea that um, this person needs to remain in power and in many ways, sort of creating what is called like this cult of personality. It's not always created, but there's this cult of personality, which is, um, you know, sort of selling to the people that you are the, like the father of the country, that you are somehow the greatest and that you shouldn't be questioned and that, that you are all knowing. Um, and and it, it's really built with a lot of propaganda, a lot of imagery, um, a lot of posters, I, I think. You see it a lot during the Cold War um, in Russia, in China, but you know autocrats autocrats today still use imagery as a way to um, show their power and to remain in power. And that's really powerful. I I love that you brought us here. Thank you for doing all of my work for <laughs> yeah. me. It has been of great. Because <laughs> um, um, with symbols, mm-hmm. well, as someone who studies a lot of ancient civilizations um, and ancient symbols, 
symbols are really powerful. We've we've talked about the power of symbols before. I know we have, and we've mm-hmm. had some really great mm-hmm. conversations about them. Yeah. So kind of with that, do they make their own? And I think we've talked about this as well, because making uh-huh. your own new thing is really, really hard when it's easy to take right. something from the past that has already some certain connotation and right. use that to sort of be a stand-in for whatever ideas you're supposedly going to be spouting and, and selling people on. So when I talk about when you see, well, let's, let's take the, the Roman Eagle, right? Um, uh-huh. The Nazis co-opted that and took that for sure. I mean, the new, yeah. Rome, the new Roman Eagle. And so today yeah. in today's movements, are there other countries out there who also want to use the Eagle because it just kind of connects it back to that idea of Roman power or um, yeah, there, there's so many different symbols. I mean, the swastika really comes up. Um, so yeah. I suppose if you're some radical fascist who believes in white power, you're going to be like, well, I don't want to create something new. I can just use this. Yeah. I mean, why create something new when you have something already ready to go? Um, you don't have to be creative. You can tie into that, whatever whatever that was maybe. So, you know, I think, I think that you used the swastika. That was a great example. Um, but, you know, not just that, you know, the, the straight R salute that Nazis did was, you know, from Rome. Some of these, this, this imagery is really, it's powerful and, and if you have it from the past and it's, it's a powerful image, it really kind of gets you like it gets you emotionally, right? Like you have that connection, especially if you if you're predisposed to um, particular ideals and I and and beliefs. Like if you are a white nationalist and you see a swastika, that's probably going to create some sort of of reaction in you. Um, and so so some of that imagery is used to show strength, right? To show a power. Um, but also to get some sort of, I think, you know, emotional response in people and you're not having to create anything new. You already have this history there. You can just tie into it and say, we're going to use this history and we're going to make it better or, you know, fulfill whatever past goals some previous civilization had or previous group had with this particular symbol. And is it maybe, is it because it's kind of the goal of all authoritarians that they are so greedy for, for power and they do want to connect and, and sort of create this, this bridge, this natural inheritance almost um, to, from the ancient to the modern, whoever used these, because it's the same repeated symbols. So why is it that certain symbols are just sort of co-opted, misappropriated, and are repeatedly used now to symbolize hate and other things? So you don't see people taking the the American peace symbol, right? It's the circle with the, whatever. You know, I, everyone knows what that looks like. Right. But why is it right. that we, we don't see people using that? But then it's always repeatedly Germanic runes, the Celtic knot, Thor's hammer, uh, especially combining my own sort of interest in research with uh-huh. a, a modern political sort of look at all this, which is the far right really corrupts and uses and misappropriates a lot of Norse symbols uh, to symbolize right. white power. Um, right. We saw it with the Capitol riots, the, the QAnon right. shaman dude had to, he had yeah. Molnir, Thor's hammer tattooed on him. He had the ash tree, the tree of Yggdrasil, which symbolizes uh, Odin. And, uh, you know, he was just missing a raven. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> technically he had the Valknut, which symbolizes Odin anyway. So, right. You know, right, why is right. it repeatedly certain cultures and certain things from ancient times, but only those that are recycled? I'm like, 
You know, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that. I, I, I think that it's probably out of, dare I say, expediency and maybe a bit of laziness um, that you're not creating anything new. You're just co-opting some previous ideology or some previous belief. And so you just keep using it because people know, like, I, I'm not sure the marketing strategy that would be, you know, for someone in, in a, you know, a white supremacist group, but you're probably not going to go out of your way to create something all that new, right? You would have to be like, oh, this is our new symbol. And we're, we're starting it here. You heard it, heard it here first. Um, they're probably just saying, well, we know that, you know, this group uses it and it seems to be effective, whether or not it's accurate or like, I don't think they're thinking too deeply into this. Um, they're probably too preoccupied with other terrible things that they're working on um, and just being bad individuals. Um, so they're not really digging in to see the history of it or if they're actually using it correctly. Instead, they're just like, well, you know, we're just gonna use this symbol because it works. and. And that's likely the sort of rationale that's probably going through their head, though I don't really talk with, at least I hope I don't talk with um, white nationalists on a, on a daily basis. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't want them in my life, uh, to, to be fair, to be clear. So um, you can, you, we can you know, extrapolate from the sort of what you would assume would be going through their brains. Um, not actually knowing <laughs> what goes through their brains because they're bad people. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yes, I, I would hope that you don't talk to white nationalists. I hope I don't either. Not intentionally, of course. Right. Um, right. If, if, yeah, if there's, if there's anyone in my life and I find out they're a white nationalist, like, bye, uh, <laughs> go, go, please <laughs> don't ever talk to me again. Thank you. <laughs> but bye. And, and if you hear it here on the podcast and you know, that's you, bye yeah, leave you don't even bye. have to tell like, me just stop you can talking just, to like, me just, right you can just like poof poof away bye let yourself out the door just please just bye i don't i don't have room for you in my life um if you see the error in your ways and decide to no longer be um a, a white supremacist or a white nationalist come back and we will and we will help you know get you back into normal society but if you're yeah just bye if you're far gone it's okay just <laughs> Yeah. Go in the QAnon Let corner. They'll, they'll they'll take you. Yeah, which is really really unfortunate. That uh, what a world we live in today. Right, and well, it's interesting because I mean they're not too imaginative. I don't think they're just co-opting other symbols. No. I mean, what is it? Th their yeah. shirt is like a big Q, and then you use the American eagle. So I'm like, so you're trying to co-opt the American eagle, which should be for all Americans, all of us. Right. Yeah. They're they're so stuck on like, listen, man. Oh. Uh, that was an inside job, you know, that they're not, they're not thinking too far beyond, like, I mean, insert whatever was an inside job or, or the Illuminati or like any sort of conspiracy that's just wild. They're more focused on, on that conspiracy than really being too creative with their, their symbolism. Mm. Well, I would say the difference between a smart authoritarian or a smart fascist and a dumb one is the dumb ones are, aren't going to be too con concerned with what symbols they're just going to use oh look um swastika scares people that makes me feel happy so i'm going to use it but but the, the difference between a really scary and like a really smart fascist though wouldn't you think that if you were going to try to start your own fascist regime on like 
a new island where you're being selective. Wouldn't you think that that person, though, would probably look into some of the, the deep, deep histories of these things because of these connotations and, and build that mythology around some of this, this mythology? Yeah, I think if, if you are, if, if say this is a hypothetical situation in which you are a smart authoritarian trying to build your own regime. Um, yeah, I think you would look more into these, the sorts of symbolism that you're using. Is it a proper symbol? Is it accurate? Does this actually depict what I want to, to portray to the world? Um, but, you know, I'm not sure that, that most authoritarians would do that. It, it, I think they're more worried about getting power and staying there than does this symbol accurately, is this accurately using the symbol, if that makes sense. It almost brings up like a question of because you're more concerned on achieving that power. And then once you're there, when you turn to how do I hold it, though, maybe does that could that lend to why authoritarian regimes, as long as some of them have gone on, they always crash on their head, right? They always implode. They, we haven't found one that's been able to really stick for a real good and long time i mean there's some that have been in power for quite a while but i just feel like with that non-attention paid to how do you fully keep your power by building up this great mythology that won't just eventually crash on its head the moment someone dies or you know some calamity happens and then that shakes their faith in in whatever mythology you've come up with i mean if you really kind of did a deep dive into the the material and the history there i I feel like maybe that would lend to some really long long lasting authoritarian regimes but it could it could but it may not necessarily right the problem with you know some authoritarians is they don't they don't outlast the ruler or um they're unable to keep people happy and that leads to a new ruler who's probably also authoritarian. Not always, sometimes they democratize. And a lot of, you know, some of these regimes do last a long time. I mean, I think of, of, of China, it's been a, a, you know, an authoritarian regime now for a very long time. And has outlasted a lot of, um, a lot of other authoritarian countries. Um, part of that has to do with the sort of setup that they have. It's very, very institutionalized, which means um, the processes are there and they keep going through with these processes. Um, But if we think about the sort of propaganda and cult of personality that is, that are built around these people um, who are in power at some point, if you are unhappy as an elite or as um, a population, no amount of and, you know, I'm sure that there's like a, a, like an amount, right? But, but generally speaking, if you're unhappy and you don't want this person to be in power anymore, it doesn't matter what your, what your symbols are or what your, you know, how mythical you may seem. If you're starving or there's something that's going on or you want to be in power, you're going to do whatever it takes to, to be in power or to change the situation. So true. These are these are more just at this point musings <laughs> of the echo. Mm-hmm. If I if I were to become some sort of a raging authoritarian, how would I build my own island of, of yeah? People? I don't know. Uh, I I don't plan yeah. to do that. So luckily, uh, that's right. not, uh, not really going to be an issue. But uh, I would probably honestly build a country similar to China, where it's very institutionalized. You have processes that are there. You allow local elections. 
um, but the party is really in control of everything and it's it's really effective it's really stable and um, you're you can allow economic development that it does not necessarily mean you're going to democratize that you can remain in power and it's effective it's so effective what china does so yeah mm, but i'm not going to build an authoritarian po- polity anytime soon uh i don't have i don't have first of all i don't have time second of all I don't, I don't have the energy to do such things, but, but if I did, I would, I would, I would be effective with it. Oh gosh. And I would, I would properly use symbols in my, my ideology. (laughs) Uh, Teach it, teach a interesting version new version of history i suppose as well the roman empire never actually died here it continued uh, underground look at this secret through us yeah. i am somehow yeah. a descendant of julius caesar at augustus okay love me yeah it's because i ate a lot of caesar salads and that is how no i'm kidding <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> oh yeah I- I honestly, sometimes if you talk about politics and the political situation and regimes the right way, you can have way too much fun. Like it's it's you completely can. awful, yeah. but you can yeah. have way too much fun in a way where I'm like, I'm having so much fun, but is this right? Oh my gosh, I'm talking about such horribly morbid things. I mean, my uh, my uh, my desk has a stack of like eight or nine books on it, and every single title is like fascism or nationalism or the you know great solutions for this horrible nationalist part yeah it's, i i've come to realize now yeah. we're very masochistic like like we just we like yeah. torturing ourselves by reading this horribly depressing literature where uh then for for the next week all you want to do when you talk to anyone is, is be like guess what i learned and this is what i read and this is completely scary and then everyone else just kind of goes okay i i don't want to be rude but like no one cares if you're in tears at like 3 a.m. over the state of the world. <laughs> yeah, I, so so it's very important if you study these sorts of really difficult topics to have a good work-life balance. Um, and you learn over time that at some point you have to stop and you have to read something lovely and 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 fluffy and delightful and and heartwarming or take up a hobby outside of, of studying about terrible people. Um, you know, I read a lot for, for my, uh, my degree and, and for my dissertation and re- research. And I find myself being like, oh, I'm going to go read this book for fun. And then very quickly, it's no longer fun. So um, I've had to establish some of these healthier boundaries in my life between um, reading about maybe um, I don't know, an authoritarian regime or a particularly terrible autocrat and reading a delightful book about, I don't know, like I recently read um, last year, I was, I've been expanding beyond, you know, academic reads and Beach Read is great as is Red, White, Red, White and Royal Blue. They were lovely. They were delightful. Um, I did read um, Animal Farm thinking it would be a leisurely read that I remember reading it in high school and I was like, well, now I study autocrats. I should read this. Don't do that to yourself. Don't read it. It's depressing. And I realized after I finished Orwell, I was like, why is it every time I finish Orwell, I just feel angry and sad. And then I was like, oh, it's because Orwell makes you angry and sad. I felt the same way after 1984. I was, yeah. So, so read it with caution. It's, they're literary classics, but just 
light reading material should be light reading material. Prepare yourself if you're reading something dystopian. Like, yeah, I don't think I would read like Orwell and then immediately pick up To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, it's a classic. I no. love it, but don't like, <laughs> save yourself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, right. It would be too terrible. Yeah. It's like you can inflict love the real books. trauma on yourself by picking up the yeah. wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are people were telling me, and I, I think I read it in it was like 2018 or 2019. I read 1984 and I thought, you know, everyone tells me, read this book, right? You study dictators, you should read this book. And I was like, oh, you know, Orwell is is great and is is, you know gifted in, in his writing and it just it just is really depressing and and it can true it really can inflict some trauma on you uh if you're not careful it's fascinating and it's a really great way to think about how authoritarians behave um and it's it's great if you look at it from like an academic standpoint but if you think about the implications of, of some countries have leaders who do these sorts of things it's not nearly as leisurely and as, as, as intriguing. It's, it's depressing. Well, that, and then of course, I think it takes a very special kind of person to be able to even read this type of material. I mean, for most people I know, they find it, while they find it interesting, they can barely get through like one Wikipedia article and then they're like, I'm too depressed. I, yeah. I need to stop. And then you're like, yeah. try reading three books in a row, unlike authoritarians right. and dictators and fascists. Right. Sometimes, sometimes the most effective strategy that I have I found when reading about and, and studying this sort of thing is really focusing on, you know, I'm going to read this, but I'm not going to necessarily think about the implications this has for individual people. Like I'm going to think, and the reason I study institutions is because I don't normally branch out beyond, you know, elite behavior. I don't know. I don't look at like repression and, um, human rights abuses, because it's really, really depressing. And, and when you really dig down into it, I did do some work in the past on it. And it just, I was just like, this is this, I don't know if I could do this every day. Cause it's so Start upsetting. Crying. Yeah. 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 But you, you, you learn sort of how to, how to, and I don't know if it's, it's just, you desensitize over time to it, or um, you learn how to separate, you know, I'm in academic mode, so I'm not really feeling strong emotions towards something um it's probably not healthy to shut down your emotions when you're reading something um but we also have sorts of, of um, strategies that we utilize to get so, through so things the the advice i'll give you then is as someone who's read I'm, I'm i'm slowly gonna catch up eventually i have a ways to go to, um i'm sure but <laughs> as someone who started with the ancient sieves the ancient political thought and all the the wars and the the struggles that the ancients went through that's a that's yes. a different kind of unique pain also because you get the the benefit of you know history so you you know what happens you, as you're right. reading about the sicilian expedition for athens you're like if only i could go back and tell you dumb fucks just like don't do it like objectively it's, it's a trap work it's a like it's a trap ended, don't do it i was like you ended your freaking power over the aegean because you decided to make stupid moves a horrendous yeah. campaign you lost yeah. and then you know all your colonies along the coast of turkey which at that point was still anatolia they all rose up and then y'all lost your fucking power so Right. Um, that's its own unique kind of thing. And what I would right. recommend for anyone who's like, I like poli sci and I like classics. Maybe I should do both. I will say 
it's kind of like a pick your poison. So read right. some depressing modern stuff, or you can start with mm-hmm. the ancient stuff with which arguably for some people, it's not as depressing. It's just history, right. which is cool to learn right. about. But uh, if, if you do it in a certain way, it's just as political as picking up any book now, which can just get you in tears and be like, I don't want to do this. So right. choose right. carefully. And, uh, and I, yeah, I think you make a really good point in that, you know, if you're studying autocrats of today, there's some uncertainty there. You don't know what's going to happen. And so the level of stress believe me there are days where it is just kind of you just have to go I can't this is outside of my control I I can only care so much about this and I can only do so much about this so I can't really get so invested in it that I'm so stressed out and depressed um not to say you don't you can't you know be sad about you know some authoritarian takeover or or whatever um but there is a different level of, of stress and a different type of stress between where your focus is and where my focus is. <laughs> you know, someday we're going to have to do some kind of book exchange where you just got to give me something like really serious about authoritarian power or whatever. And then I'm just going to yeah. give you like one of these treatises I have in the ancient world. We're going to have to do some kind of like reading exchange where then... Right. I, right. you know, um, I'd come back and be like, okay, Rage, so what do you think? Is this more or less depressing than what you do? Um, yeah, I'll probably be like, see. this is great. I it was such a great, so enjoyable. And then you'll be like, why time. are you reading this? What is wrong with you? Why did you give me this? Are you, are you okay? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, but, but you know, it's okay not to be okay. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Oh, I would love this. Okay, we got to set this up, man. I yeah, yeah. I got to well, find something will. for you. Just just find like yeah. the most depressing parts of like Thucydides or something, and be like, here, mm. read this. Mm-hmm. Or, well, yeah. I suppose it's a it's a different kind of pain. You can you can spread it out. Some of it's political from looking at some of the yeah. histories. Some of it's just like, hey, do you want to read some Hesiod? Because he just like slams on women. So yeah, yeah. if you were like, mm. yeah, what did he think of women? He calls them like cows and sheep and horrible, <laughs> like temptresses. Wow. And you're like, oh, wow. okay, this is great. Wow. You know, what an adventure. Um, that's, <laughs> that sounds like that'll be so good for my mental health <laughs> to be called a cow or whatever yeah so cool horrible. no I mean <sighs> so depressing um yeah yes, yes. um I, I love everything about this conversation as horrible as it is this is this is why I recommend everyone get themselves a friend who studies either like horrible authoritarians or fascism or just policy right. in general because then you can go off on great tangents and um have a lot of fun theorizing about horrible scenarios that may or may never come right. true. But the, the last thing on this topic I want to ask you about, mm-hmm. serious question though. Yeah. Got to be serious. Um, okay. Is, <laughs> so what would you say to that naive person who says, if it's that depressing, why the fuck do you want to read this? Just put it down. Don't read this. And if politics depresses you or all it does is make you angry, don't do it. Like, that's so terrible. I like you're forcing yourself to be this horrible, horribly unhappy person. You should just not do that. Right. I mean, listen, I for those of you that that don't really know me, um, I'm an optimist. Like the glass is always full. 
it's not even half full. It's full of water and air, depending on exactly where you're at. So I, there's always a bright side and I try to find the silver lining in, in everything. And that's sort of, and I'm, I have, I, I'm, I try to laugh at a lot of different things and that's sort of how I get through life, right? That's my, been my coping strategy through life is to be optimistic and to have a sense of humor. It's normal when you're reading terrible things for it to make you sad and make you depressed. If it didn't and you found immense joy in it, I would be very worried about your either mental status or or are you like, are you okay? Because that would terrify me if you're over here like, yes, I, I loved reading about X, Y, or Z because I love the process. Like I think about reading in school, we read about um, Foucault and, you know, some of the, like the uh, torture and different things. And it was, it's terrible, right? Like it, it was painful to read and, and it was just was not fun at all. And I don't go back to that anytime. Like, it's not like I'm like, I can't go wait to go read more of this stuff about, you know, awfulness. Um, but for me, whenever I'm reading about these terrible things and I'm, I'm, I'm researching and, and, and teaching about, you know, the terrible things that autocrats do, I always try to remind myself that I still enjoy learning about it. I don't necessarily, like, it can be depressing, but there's joy in the research process. There's joy in discovering something new. Um, and if we don't understand these autocrats, we're missing understanding a large segment of the world, right? Like recently I was reading um, that there are now more authoritarian regimes in the world than there are democracies um, for the first time since 2001. And that in itself really reiterates that we need to understand autocrats. We need to understand why it is that we're making this shift towards authoritarian regimes over democracies. Um, and it may be depressing, but the implications of it are so much bigger than maybe feeling sad or depressed by a topic, the implications are the world needs to know more about this. And it's something that I am passionate about. Um, and so I want to, I want to do this. I want this to be my thing. I want to continue to research this. There are days where it's, it's a lot and it's depressing, but most of the time, if I'm having a day like that, I just kind of stop, do a little self-care, just sort of separate myself from it and start back again the next day. But it's, it's necessary work that even if it's depressing, even if it's upsetting, it still needs to be done. And we still need to you know, strive to help create um, a better world and governments that work for people um, that are more effective. I'm going to put it better myself. I mean, I will also say it probably helps that you have a bunch of political friends that you can sort of yes. vent to and, yes. Uh, yes. and all that good stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine tackling half of what I tackle alone. I mean, yeah. that's just yet another reason that I I love poli-sci people and I have a bunch of other friends who also love international issues and, and uh, all, all that that entails. So um, right. those people are kind of indispensable now. I mean, if, I, if something hap yeah. happens, I can literally just text up a bunch of people and be like, did you see this? What are you feeling? This is how I'm feeling. And we, we got it. Like, we're good. Yeah. Um, you build a community around yeah. you to help process some of these more difficult topics. Yeah. Yeah. And that's honestly one of the great reasons that for those of you who don't know, uh, I met Rach here through Model UN. We staffed the yes. same Model UN conference um, that I participated in all as an undergrad. Uh, and I just, I got there and I said, these are my people. They're very political, yeah. very political, uh, but we all, we <laughs> yes. all get along and we, we all share and talk about these things. 
but also just kind of with that to tack on the end do you think that studying politics is a a privilege kind of because I know a lot of people who are kind of like oh yeah yeah we we have politics in our everyday life and we can sort of pay attention to this whatever nominal level that we want to but for some people they say well studying that is really a privilege because I don't want to or it's hard you know I think a lot of of what I have um in life is is great I've had so many opportunities that I am immensely grateful for um And there is a privilege to be able to be, to get your PhD um, that I have to acknowledge, right? As a a white, highly educated woman, there's privilege there. Uh, And and so I always have to be cognizant of that, to recognize that. But I think, you know, there are people who don't necessarily want to pay attention to politics, who don't really want to understand politics, and that's up to them. They're able to have that opinion. Um, but I think it's so important that that's why I do it, right? That this is my passion, that it is so important to know and understand the world around us, that that's, that's my calling in life, I think, um, to, to research and to understand these things, but also to teach it and you know, help create better citizens in the world who do care about government, not just authoritarian regimes, but democracies. They find something they're passionate about and they go and, and, and be the good that they want to see in the world. Um, you know, John Lewis, the late John Lewis, um, he said, democracy is not a state, it's an act. And so for me, um, you know, I have this privilege to be able to study the world and to study politics and I'm going to use that privilege for good in the world. And I'm going to use that platform to help build people that, that care and are passionate about different things, about making the world a better place. And I'm going to use that privilege for good and, and just to create a, a better society. You can't do it all, right? There's, what's that saying? That you can't do everything, but everyone can do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want, to, I want to help build better citizens around me to make the world better and and use the good and the, the opportunities and privilege that I've received to help just make better people, build build better citizens. Well, that's just beautiful. And I'm over here like, I'm going <laughs> to cry. I'm going to cry. Um, and, and I love it because more than any other topic, as I've said multiple times throughout my mm-hmm. life and probably on the podcast by now, um, you know, <laughs> I really feel an affinity for classics the ancient world ancient studies humanities and politics because they are so closely related and it's Mm -hmm. it's part of why i thought what you just said was really beautiful was because i see myself in the same way in the context Mm -hmm. of with my background with studying the ancient world which is we both occupy this unique role where we kind of contextualize a lot of what is going on now versus what happened for people who know don't necessarily feel that they have the opportunity or the privilege to study these things or even if they don't have the interest it, we are we're we're kind of the guardians of the past and of yeah. guiding the future so there are so many reasons why that's beautiful so i i would love to become a professor myself i don't know what or where i will land in that yet because i'm still grappling with some of the applicability issues and the where do i fit in what what subject do i feel like this is where i should become the expert i think it's awesome that you know you are where you are and so i'm really excited to see you finish and become a doctor yeah and and i'm gonna say that from all the great kernels of wisdom that you've shared with us today any student you've had is lucky to have you as as a teacher because you you just offer 
such great things to say. So I, I always just love our conversations because I'm like, I learn so much at the same time that I get to sort of be my zany self spouting off all these different um, <laughs> theories. So with that, uh, at the end of every podcast, I have every guest read uh, Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, because it is, well, my favorite poem. But I think Mm -hmm. that anyone who is into the ancient world or politics, honestly, would love the poem Um, Mm -hmm. just because it evokes such strong feelings. It's pretty short, um, but it still has the power to really capture our imagination. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a short way that can sort of capture really powerful, timeless emotions in a way that a, a more concise way that some of these epic poems that classicists read. So, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about the Aeneid or the Iliad and Odyssey all the time. These are very long epic poems, but a short 14 line sonnet to me, if it's written, crafted well, it can kind of do the same thing. So yeah, if you could read it and then just give me your thoughts, like what do you, what does it make you feel like? You know, what what is the first thing that comes to mind? I just, I love these quick reactions. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All right. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fled. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Zaminus, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains, 
round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Ooh. So it's very nice. It is. It is Percy Shelley's best work. And I think for a lot of people, Ozymandias is like a word that they're familiar with, but they don't know it's a poem because people I've noticed put it in titles and stuff and then they don't explain. And so then all you see is just like Ozymandias is a word. And then you're like, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was delightful. Very, very powerful for sure. So from your perspective as a political scientist and not as um, an ancient scholar, Mm -hmm. um, is this poem just a beautifully worded poem or does it carry a lot of weight behind it, do you think? I think poetry is powerful. Um, And and very quickly, you know, words can exude sorts of, of emotions and feelings and you get this heaviness with it. I think it's more than just a few words. There is that, there's power behind that poem. It's one of those poems that, that I would like just to sit down in and read a few times and just really dig in. And I think that's the beauty of poetry, right? That you, that there's, there's so few words ultimately, but each word is, is, is important and has this, this distinct meaning to it that it's picked and selected for that very specific purpose. And, you know, the, the rhetoric around politics is very similar, right? You use very specific words and your terminology matters and your precision matters. And so I think it's powerful. And I think it really reiterates the importance of the words you use matter and the there's power in the words that you use and that you select. Yeah, for sure. I don't remember exactly what age I was when I read the poem. I was probably in either high school or I definitely read it before college, but I just don't remember when. And the thing that stood out to me immediately was that it is a, a picture, a look at the hubris of man. It's it's also a, quite a, a strong statement on the ephemeral nature of political power, right? I tell everyone who doesn't know, Ozymandias is just the Greek name for the pharaoh Ramesses II. He was the most powerful mm-hmm. pharaoh in Egyptian history and the richest, arguably the most decadent. And yeah, he was he was king of the world. He was on top back then when he was king. And what the poem is clearly saying is he thought he would last forever, right? He was a, he was yeah. a god made flesh. Mm-hmm. But when it says something so powerful as look upon my works, ye mighty and despair, then the very next line is nothing beside remains around yeah. the decay of that colossal wreck. So yeah. he was great, right? But then it's it's all gone. I mean, he's saying, look at my empire. It's gone. It's, it's buried yeah. under 3,000 years of sand. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, how how great were you if if it weren't for this lowly artisan who you probably I don't know if he even paid him. I hope I hope he would have paid him. But if, <laughs> right. it, if it weren't for this artisan, would we even have a statue? Because we only know of him because of material evidence, his mummy, right. his statues, the fact right. that we find his name engraved on old ruins. If it weren't for all these right. people the greatest person yeah. on earth would never have been known to man, which I love that statement. So kind of with that in mind, and mm-hmm. I love this question at the end, it's become very quickly my favorite. Mm-hmm. If you're going off that definition of kind of the meaning of the poem, mm-hmm. can you think of what to you 
is like a modern Ozymandias. Is there a modern Ozymandias? Because I love thinking about this. It's the best of the best. And it could be a person. So, you know, with your um, political experience, you could say, I don't know, Putin. Um, You could say a Trump (laughs) Tower. Uh, One of my favorite examples that my former professor used earlier on the podcast was a an abandoned casino in Atlantic City because he was like, we thought those things were going to last forever and be the greatest thing. Uh, they're abandoned. They're just gone. It's a hollowed out ruin. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I've had some really creative answers on the podcast. Someone said technology. Someone said um, good deeds never go out of style. So while you can build mm-hmm. buildings named after yourself, you know, those buildings one day will, will crash, come down, be destroyed, something, but good deeds... You know, how, how do you make yourself immortal is essentially, I guess, what, what I'm asking. Um, or can you never escape the fact that eventually you will be gone? Yeah, I, that's a really great question. I think of something that we think will always be around, maybe something as simple as democracy, that we think democracy will always be a thing. But what if we create something better? What if we create something new that's more effective, that's more true to represent the ideas of people that um, someday we'll look and go, oh yeah, democracy, that was fun. You know, I think that progress and moving forward in time means that things that are effective right now, things that exist now, they're all in so many ways contextual. And without, without acknowledging that, you know, democracy is changing over time, like what it means to be a democracy changes. And so I would say probably just political systems are going to change. They're not going to remain the same. And, and whether that's a good or a bad thing, I, that's, that depends on, on your opinions and the context as well. But I don't think we can escape that everything will change and that someday what is, what is good now may be very different to what's good in the future and what's useful in the future. I like that line of thinking. I think it's really interesting. You know, 2000 years from now, will democracy look anything like what it looks now? And my guess is no, because democracy now does not look anything like what the ancient Athenians said was democracy. Right. Right. Um, And I can think of a parallel to your answer would be um, like financial systems as well. Um, Yeah. We talk about capitalism a lot in this country and a lot of people I disagree with the with the notion that capitalism is the greatest thing on earth um, for multiple reasons, but <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of people do think it's the best system that we have now. Obviously, if you're comparing that to straight up socialism or communism, there's a lot to be said for capitalism. Right. But yeah, what if we create something completely different that's not capitalism, it's different from everything else, and that's better? Um, we yeah. can only look forward to a better day. And then and then maybe one day we'll look back and say, <laughs> capitalism, that was an interesting thing. <laughs> what a trip. Right. So I, I do yeah. like how you're thinking along the lines of, of sort of massive systems for, for, yeah. for humanity, really, um, right. because I, I would be interested to see how they change. Uh, and it's only a shame we're not going to be alive 2000 years from now to be able to look back and say, what were they doing in the early 20th and 21st century? Man, they, one can did. only imagine what's going to be written in history books about this time we're, we're alive. It, it'll be It'll be interesting to see, to say the least. And, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we are just a blip in time and a blip in 
society and in life. And we just are lucky enough to be right here, right now, living it up, leaving our, our little legacy for, for the future. No matter how vast our legacy is or, or how small our legacy is, we're still leaving it here to hopefully leave the world a better place. Hopefully better place than we found it. I mean, there's a lot to be said for all these ancient empires, which at the time were, I'm sure the greatest the world's ever seen. And now did all of them leave the world a better place for the future? Arguably some say yes, some say no, some say, (laughs) I don't know. Um, That's why we study these things, but yeah, it's been so fun to have you on and uh, thank thank you so so much much for for agreeing to, to join me. Of course. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.